Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, we charities never-ending goodbye, who's standing up for free speech, and do Albertans deserve an independence referendum? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome everyone to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. And you know that we charity thing that was all the rage last year where you had the government giving tens of millions of dollars in an untendered contract to this charity that was supposed to put youth back to work and do all these great things. But then, well, we actually found out that they had been giving a lot of money to Justin Trudeau's family members and had these longstanding relationships. Is this ringing any bells with anyone? It seems like this huge story has all but disappeared, which is exactly what Justin Trudeau wanted when he prorogued Parliament, effectively halting the investigation into this scandal. And now here we are again. Canadians have moved on. All the talking now is about the vaccine bungling, but we'll save that for another episode. We charity was not an insignificant thing. And in a lot of ways, this is showing how Trudeau has managed to really just be Teflon Trudeau, not letting any scandal hold him back. Now, SNC-Lavalin, we, blackface, doesn't matter. He gets through it all. But the we one, I think, was interesting because it involved so many of the usual suspects of Canadian politics who all had these ties. Remember, I mean, Bill Morneau was the one who ultimately fell on his sword, and now he doesn't even get the benefit of that soft landing as Secretary General of the OECD. I mean, I'm so sorry. My condolences to uh, Mr. Morneau on the death of his uh, global political ambitions. But We Charity was supposed to have been a casualty of this scandal as well. You may remember in September, we said that it was going to be folding its Canadian operations. And they said it was going to take some time because they had all of these different things, but they were going to be shutting down. And a lot of people were saying, okay, good riddance. They didn't think it was doing all that much apart from hosting these big glitzy parties. And the Kielberger brothers, who were rather indignant when they did testify before the Finance Committee, were at first unrepentant, and then eventually they were uh, conceding that, you know what, it was time to to say farewell. But this has been a very long farewell. The We Charity Goodbye is looking like the never-ending Share Farewell Tour, which I think started in like 1894 and is still continuing to this day. Because We was doing this weird sit-down on the Fifth Estate in which they were trying to, it seemed like, put some spin on what happened. They conceded in this that the whole controversy left them political roadkill, that the government wasn't there for them, but they were also somewhat contrite. They said, well, you know what, we should have known that this was a problem. We we didn't have any idea. They even at one point said that we were just, you know, political neophytes. We had no idea that this would even be a problem. We should have known, but we didn't know. Take a look at this clip. Oh, we didn't have to on the We Day stage. Specifically, though, what we did need her help for is other events, for example, friend raisers or fundraisers or events that we did for educators or others in the community that we needed a speaker, just like a university lecture series Um, or some celebrity comes to a golf tournament with fundraising. That's why she was engaged with us. And she was one of dozens of people who did this. We had sponsors specifically for that. And that's why she was engaged. And fortunately, the, the, the message got very convoluted and, and also, and, and listen, I get it, to an ordinary Canadian, this makes a ton of sense, I get this, 
she earned and what we basically paid her worked up to about $6,500 per event, which I know to a lot of Canadians that go, that's a crazy amount of money. I understand that. But in reality, compare that to other speaking fees, what we gained as a charity and what people pledged as donations for those events was a multiple of a multiple of a multiple of that. It worked out well for us. And that's why Chris Hadfield was there. And that's why Chantal Petitclerc was there. And yes, that's why Margaret Trudeau was there. But I think the average Canadian saw this differently. I think what they saw is that you were paying for access to the Trudeaus. And, and very favors. You were paying for something that would help you in the long run, like getting a sole sourced contract from the federal government. And that was a brutal perception to a children's charity. I get that. I understand that. And we were politically blind in understanding that issue. I will own that. We started with Margaret Trudeau before Justin Trudeau was even prime minister. Like this is a long-standing relationship. It was, it was never you know, a decade of thinking that somehow down the line this would ever lead to anything and that someday a pandemic would strike and there would be an opportunity to gain a national contract. We are certainly not that um, forward thinking. But I understand that from an optics point of view, I, I get it, I, I do. And I, and I understand why we did not do a good enough job of explaining that, and, 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 I, and I own that. So again, they say they're politically blind, and well, I mean, they didn't actually spend that much money on Margaret Trudeau, but they also talk about how she was used for fundraising. And that seems to be very odd, that in the span of just under two minutes, they seem to be conceding that this woman was bringing in huge money. Donors wanted to be involved in what she was doing with we, and, and why is that? No offense to Margaret Trudeau, I'm sure she's a perfectly lovely woman, but why would a bunch of these heavy hitter donors want to be paying to get access to Weed Charity and access to a woman with the name of Trudeau when Justin Trudeau is the Prime Minister of Canada? So the idea that these guys who have spent their whole lives building We Charity to be this global brand, to be hobnobbing with celebrities, to be getting contracts where they get to be responsible for dispensing a billion dollars, why would we believe that they just didn't know what they were doing? They want us to believe that they're just the Keystone Keelburgers, just like going around and they don't really know what they're up to, but they're a lot more shrewd than that. And even this interview seems to be an exercise in that shrewdness, trying to just be all aw shucks about it. And I wonder if we is actually going away. Now, this is, again, admittedly not a huge smoking gun, but it's something that is interesting nonetheless. Jesse Brown of Canada Land, who, whatever you think about him or Canada Land, has been very solid on keeping at the Wii scandal very doggedly, uncovered this uh, job posting that was posted by a woman who is the head of marketing partnerships and programs for Wii Charity, hiring for someone to do a live streaming show for kids a, quote, future opportunity, unquote, a scripted live show with a hosted format streamed to a closed network, and they want it to start immediately. But what was interesting is that she said it's a short-term and small project with future opportunity. And the question that Jesse Brown raised, is this a weird job for an organization that is supposedly in the process of winding down and is supposed to be winding down this year in, uh, what, five months, six months? So there is, a, I think, a big question about that. And, and even the Kielbergers doing this interview, what is it they hope to gain from this? Why are they sitting down? If we is going away, 
which is what we were told. Why on earth are they doing all of these things that look like an organization poised for a rebrand or a comeback? And at this point, it's just a question, but I think it's a very valid question. And as much as I raise issue with how we behaved, don't forget that they are not the bad guy here. And one of the things that Justin Trudeau has managed to do to allow himself to skirt through all of these controversies is by making someone else take the fall. When SNC-Lavalin happened, who was it? It was Gerald Butts that stepped down, and it was Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council. When blackface happened, it was society's fault. It was all the learning lessons that society needed to embrace. When we happened, it was Bill Morneau that went and took the fall, and, and in a lot of ways, we was thrown under the bus. And I, I think they may have deserved to be there in some ways, but Trudeau has always managed to make it so that someone else is to blame, or society collectively just needs to do better. I'm a firm believer when we talk about conflict of interest violations that the real bad guy in these dynamics is not the person who's trying to buy access to the politician, but it's any politician who sells access. And that's just a, a general observation. My issue with we is not that they took this big, huge contract, because if you're in the business of doing this and someone gives you that much money, you say thank you and you pocket it before anyone calls you on it. My issue is with the government that was just so ham-fistedly eager to give up that money. And when we saw the emails that were released through the WE Committee before it was shut down, we saw this, that this wasn't just something that was actually plopped on the Prime Minister's desk. This was something that his office was very eagerly involved with and shepherded along and actually made happen. So don't let WE take the fall for the Prime Minister's office and for the Prime Minister. But similarly, don't let anyone forget that we was complicit in this and we was involved in this and we has tried to pretend that it had no idea that there were any issues with this when anyone would see that there were. And one thing that Craig Kielberger mentioned in that interview is, well, you know, I see how the average person would look at this and think it was a problem. Well, if he can see that, I mean, at what point did he realize that? At what point did he reach that conclusion? Perhaps only after everyone else did. But the idea that this uh, little contrite Mia Culpa-esque interview is coming after months of we uh, at first denying that they gave the politicians, family members any money, and then later on saying that, oh, well, okay, no, 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 it was actually from, we paid from this organization, not this organization, wink, wink. And I mean, the whole point is they've had so many opportunities in which they could make this right and haven't. So doing it now makes you ask why now, and more importantly, don't let them forget what's happened up until this point. We've got to take a break when we return more of the andrew lawton show here on true north you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show welcome back to the andrew lawton show i've been covering the last few shows this forthcoming legislation that heritage minister stephen gilbo has promised to regulate online speech and the reason i'm talking about it again is because no one else is for example, Stephen Gilbo mentioned, and this is what I, I said on Tuesday's show, that the online hate definition will be based on a Supreme Court decision that actually took a, a very non-inclusive view of, and I don't mean inclusive in the like Justin Trudeau diversity is our strength sense, but I mean inclusive in the sense of what is legal and what is acceptable. A very non-inclusive view of free speech by focusing more on harms and by saying that, you know what, even speech that's true could conceivably be hateful. 
And the reason this is so important is because that story got a little bit of coverage in French media, La Presse. No English media covered it, except for True North. No English media picked up that story. And similarly, when he's been in an ongoing basis talking about this, almost no one has asked the questions through the lens of free speech, what are you actually going to do? What is this legislation actually going to be about? When we talk about free speech and all of the aspects of society that are connected to it, it's astonishing how few advocates there are for it. And this is something that used to be a lot more unanimous than it is now. For example, when the Canadian Human Rights Commission had its Section 13, which was the online hate speech provision, that it was taken away, it was, uh, restri- it was rescinded by the Conservatives, there were a lot of people on the left and the right, your old school liberals, that said, you know what, this is wrong. People in the mainstream media, journalists that said, you know what, this is actually pretty chilling to free speech and stood up and opposed it on principle. When Ezra Levant and Mark Stein were fighting these commissions, they were actually getting support from people who were their political opponents because everyone realized or enough people realized, you know what, we can't have these institutions that have mandates to censor. Well, now what's happening, the Liberals are bringing back Section 13 with a vengeance. They're bringing back a much more powerful and supercharged version of it, which is still aiming to enforce a definition of hate speech that is distinct from the definition that exists in the criminal code and the definition that actually exists in Canadian laws. They're creating a new definition which only serves to restrict and hinder free speech. And who's standing up? Who is standing up for it? Where's Amnesty? Where's Penn Canada? Where's Canadian Journalists for Free Expression? In a lot of ways, I have to ask, where are the Conservatives? I asked Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole at a press conference about this, and I want you to take a listen to his answer. Good morning, Mr. O'Toole. The Heritage Minister has said that the government will imminently be introducing legislation to tackle what it says is online hate, and and Minister Gilbo has said that the definition will be based on the Watcott Supreme Court decision, which was one that had focused more on harm than free speech, and had, had actually at one point had said that something could be truthful but still qualify as hate speech. And I'm curious for you as the leader of a party that repealed Section 13 of the Human Rights Act and someone who stood up for free speech in the leadership, what your thoughts are on on this forthcoming legislation? I've stood up for free speech in this parliamentary session when the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, suggested it wasn't a priority when it's a fundamental pillar. We saw President Macron call uh, Prime Minister Legault or Premier Legault before he called Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, This week, Andrew, we've actually been focused on the MindGeek Pornhub situation where we have to protect our most vulnerable online. Some of the testimony we've heard uh, is literally heartbreaking. And the fact that a a company that was uh, originated in in Canada and and had that, that, uh, that presence, the fact that we're not shutting down these, uh, these, ability for the vulnerable to be exploited online is a travesty. So we'll see what the government brings forward, but we want to make sure that the most vulnerable with online exploitation is an immediate priority. You know, I I think the MindGeek Pornhub issue is a very important one. I think protecting the vulnerable from online harm is a very important issue. I don't think it has anything to do with the question that I asked. And apart from that very tacit endorsement of free speech in a general sense at the beginning, there was nothing to do with free speech in his answer. 
Now, I didn't ask that as a softball, but I am fully aware that asking a conservative to stand up for free speech is probably one of the easiest things you can do. That's like just a no-brainer for people on the right to say, well, yes, you know, free speech is great and this is terrible and here's why. And it was Brian Storseth, a conservative MP who led the charge to rescind Section 13. It was conservative MPs on the Justice Committee even last year that were actually doing their work, or it might have been 2019 rather, that were doing their work to push back against some of the discussions in committee that led to this legislation indirectly. But Aaron O'Toole was asked a very clear question, could not give an answer that was standing up against this with the exception of, well, we'll see what the government does. Well, we already know. We already know what the government is putting out here because they've told us. Now, I would like to actually testify when this goes before committee, I would like to testify before committee on this. And I am going to tell you, if you have a conservative MP in your riding, let them know, if, especially if they're sitting on that committee, I want to be there. Because we need free speech advocates right now to push back against this. You know, there were, there were enough cultural issues, cultural barriers to free speech right now in society, from big tech, in all of these other ways. We don't need a legal barrier on top of that. We don't need yet another legal barrier, a tool to allow the government to get in bed with big tech and censor people that, again, are guilty of something that is very ill-defined or are believed to be. Because that's the whole point of this. This legislation that the government is looking at will penalize big tech if they do not censor. But government is not doing the dirty work. It's the tech companies that are. And Minister Gilbo mentioned that, oh, well, you know, we should probably have an appeal mechanism in place of some kind. But I don't know if they're going to actually have that. And the fact that he's acknowledged ramming this through because there might be an election, so we have to work quickly, indicates that this won't be all that well thought out. So I cannot stress how important this legislation is to watch, and I cannot stress my disappointment that no one else is paying attention to it. My message to you, and I know I've got members of parliament that listen to this show and read my columns, and I'm very appreciative of it, but do not let this get by without a fight. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You may recall a few months back when people were, you know, allowed to leave their homes. I was in Alberta speaking at the Freedom Talk, which was a conference put on to explore the very question I'm going to be exploring in this segment, which is Western independence and Western alienation. And I always try to turn anything I am at to an opportunity. So I did a number of interviews, including with MLA Drew Barnes, who we'll talk to in a moment, about where things are right now. What are the grievances that Alberta has with confederation what are the solutions what are the resolutions what are the sticking points and the one thing i found even then is that there was a great deal of anger and frustration but it wasn't irrational people have very legitimate grievances ranging from the equalization to the lack of autonomy over the pension plan to the manner in which alberta's number one industry and export oil and gas and, and energy more broadly are continually given the middle finger by other parts of the country even those who benefit from 
from the equalization payments made possible because of Alberta's oil and gas sector. So all of these problems are very real. And with the cancellation of Keystone XL, with other developments uh, such as the precariousness of the Line 5, which is an Enbridge project, these sentiments, I fear, are only growing to such an extent that Drew Barnes, an MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat, has called for an independence referendum in 2023 when Albertans go to the polls for the next election. This is above and beyond the equalization referendum that Jason Kenney has promised, and it's something that would put in his mind an ability to go to the federal government and say, hey, listen, Prime Minister, we need to renegotiate. Look at how many people are ready to walk away. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole did a press conference this morning, and I'd actually asked him about this because he, despite being from Ontario and specifically the GTA, has always been someone who has stood up for Western voices. We saw this in his leadership race where he said, listen, this is not something that we can take for granted. And it was even the first topic he raised with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after he became the leader of the Conservatives. And I had asked him, listen, between the Keystone, the Line 5, the independence referendum, the equalization referendum, all of these things, how do you as the Conservative leader and how would you as Prime Minister deal with these sentiments? And this is what he had to say. It's the first thing I brought up to the Prime Minister in my first call with him. Canadians are losing faith because of the incompetence, the ethical scandals, and the ideological out-of-touch approach of the Trudeau government. This is why, Andrew, we're having the committee that we're requesting today, the Canada-U.S. Committee. After five years, no softwood lumber agreement. Prime Minister Trudeau has had Keystone cancelled twice under two different presidents. Line 5 is at risk. By American protectionism, we can't have vaccine and, and PPE sharing with our closest ally. We need to make sure that we rebalance trade with the United States for the well-being of tens of thousands of Canadian families in energy and forestry, in the auto industry, in my own backyard, in my own riding. Conservatives are bringing this committee forward today to focus on securing that important economic partnership so that thousands of families will have the certainty of a job. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that answer, but the whole point is a lot of people in the West are growing more and more frustrated with what they see as being an all-talk, no-action response, which is why Cypress Medicine had MLA Drew Barnes is saying it's time to have a referendum and, in his mind, put the cards on the table. Drew Barnes joins me on the line now. Drew, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Andrew. So we've understood that this is meant to be a a process of escalation in some ways, where you have the fair deal panel and then you have the equalization referendum. And then from there, you negotiate with the government and federally and and see what you can come up with. Why are you saying it's time to go right to having that referendum on independence? Well, for for a couple of main reasons, um, you know, let's suppose the equalization referendum passes uh, I solidly believe it will by, by a large margin. But then Ottawa needs to be put on notice first and foremost that Albertans are, are feeling the despair. You know, there, there's a lot of frustration out here and Albertans want to take risk and, and we want to be successful. And, and with the current situation, that's, that's not happening. So Ottawa needs to know that there will be consequences if they don't give Alberta a fair deal if they don't give Alberta equality, and if they don't give us resource movement. Uh, and, and, you know, we can come back to that. And secondly, Andrew, 
you know, I'm grateful I had a chance to be on the Fair Deal panel. That's a year ago. I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to represent Cypress Medicine Hat for, for about 10 years now. I'm in my third term. And Albertans are the ones that need to decide if Ottawa has given us a, a fair deal. And the best way to do that is with an independence referendum about 16, 17 months after the equalization referendum, uh, at the same time as we're having our provincial election. You know, Andrew, on the Fair Deal panel, and I hear it every day in coffee shops and, and, and around uh, Alberta and around Medicine Hat, what I, what I, Albertans want to push, Albertans are, are to the point where they want to, they want a fair deal from our Canadian partners from Ottawa. Many of them are willing to open the constitution and look at Senate reform. Uh, equalization uh, is part of the, the constitution, so that needs to be open for, for that to come out. Uh, frustrated with the lack of resource movement. So the best way to hold Ottawa accountable, to let Ottawa know what the consequences are, is let Albertans decide if they've gone far enough to uh, make us an equal part of Canada. One thing that I've seen just in talking about this issue and, and even being out at, at those conferences, the Freedom Talk conferences where I, I've had the chance to speak with you, there seems to be a, a split in a lot of people that would fall under that banner of experiencing Western alienation where some say, listen, you know, the Canadian Confederation experiment is done. Alberta's getting shafted. We want out. And other people that say, if we could achieve X, Y, and Z, we could get to a point where this is a, a workable arrangement for us. And I would say that everyone agrees that the equalization formula is broken but independence that group that says you know what we need to get out there's no hope we can't fix this that we can't work within that's a, a smaller subset just naturally than the larger one of people that want to work within this so do you feel that there's a risk that you could actually reveal that this is just a minority position if you had a referendum that goes right to that final no turning back independence question yeah, thanks for that question. I, I think the, the risk is, is those in Ottawa and, and those that believe Alberta can be a valuable part of, of the Canadian Confederation. Andrew, the, the desire for out-and-out -out independence has grown exponentially here, here in Alberta. It has grown tremendously uh, as people, you know, frustrated with not having a voice in, in, in our Senate, not having a voice in our elections as people who, who want to take risk and go to work and, and produce, uh, you know, environmentally clean uh, products, can't do it. And, and, and many of them have moved to the independence. So I think a lot of the risk is, is on Ottawa's side. Uh, if they don't get it right, the, this movement could grow to the point where, where you, you can't put it, it, the toothpaste back in the tube. And uh, so, so that's where I think the, the real risk is. Um, Yes, there's a lot of people that that have sentimental attachment to see the value in still being being part of Canada, but at least 80% of the people in the Fair Deal panel and the people I talk to say that uh, Alberta is getting the, the short straw and it is time for us to push and see if we can get a better deal with, within the Canadian Confederation and, and if not, uh, explore all our options and one of those options is independence. So when you say independence, you're you're talking about, you know, the Republic of Alberta, so to speak, not just a system where you have your own pension plan, your own municipal police force or a provincial police force. You, you, but but you're also opening the door to the fact that there could be remedies before you get to that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's look at Saskatchewan right next door. Uh, Premier Mo, give or take three months ago, appointed a minister of autonomy. 
to explore ways that Saskatchewan could be more autonomous from Ottawa and do more things on their own. So, you know, we're, and we're 20 years ago uh, this February that uh, the famous firewall letter of, of Stephen Harper, Tom Flanagan, Ken Buzengal, Andy Crooks said that one of the things that Alberta and the West needs to do to, to grow, to assert our independence from Ottawa so, so we can be stronger is to do things that you just mentioned. Our own, our own pension is an example. Uh, I've seen experts suggest that if Alberta had its own pension, the people of Alberta would have a $3 billion annual benefit. So whether we, we gave um, you know, our, our seniors a, a larger benefit or we gave our employees and our employers less contribution, either one would, would help Albertans. Likewise, our, our own police force, uh, you know, Ontario and Quebec both have their own provincial police force. Um, you know, you know, God bless the individual RCMP officers for, for how hard they work and what they do mm -hmm. for us. But rural crime is horrendous here right now. And, and you know, as the economy is, is, is having trouble, I mean, it's probably only going to get worse. Uh, likewise, there's a lot of Albertans that think it's time for, for more control over our immigration. Um, we, we have a pretty big greenhouse industry in, in Southern Alberta. And, and from time to time, these, these risk takers, these great producers have trouble getting people. So a little more local decision-making would, would make that easier. So, yeah, so, so I, I think the steps are, you know, let's, let's make sure that Ottawa is 100% aware of, of how unequal the deal, deal is. Andrew, how they could not be after after the six hundred and seventy billion dollars that Alberta has sent to the to Ottawa since 1960. But but let's let's put the cards on the table and let's make Alberta the freest, most prosperous place. And I've said it before, if that's within Canada, that's great. If that's not within Canada, that's great. But it doesn't seem like the only opposition to this is from Ottawa. I mean, even your own party's leader, Jason Kenney, the premier, has said that he expects that UCP MLAs will call for United Canada and a fight within Confederation. So uh, he's saying that's the commitment that UCP candidates were supposed to make to voters. Do you feel like you have an ally in your premier on this? Well, well I do. I believe that uh, Premier Kenney wants... Alberta to be free and prosperous and strong. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I have no idea of, of, of all the things that are, you know, that are happening with him. But let's look at, at uh, Trudeau's reaction to the Keystone being cancelled about a week ago. Uh, you know, 800 and some thousand barrels of oil per day that would provide lots of jobs, lots of taxes, lots of for our municipalities, for our health care, for our education. And Andrew, when it was cancelled, he didn't even raise an eyebrow. Um, what I'm hearing is the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you know, the twinning, where 90% of it's in the same right of way as the existing Trans Mountain Pipeline that's been there since the early 1950s. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing that's progressing at, at a snail's pace. Uh, the cancellation of the Northern Gateway, uh, the, the, the message has been so clear that getting Canadian oil and gas to China and India would do so much to improve the air quality of the world. It would allow us to get full price for our bitumen instead of the 30% approximately discount we average selling it to the Americans. And what would that do for, for opportunity for Albertans and Canadians? What would that do for our social programs? It would do so much. Um, I, I think I saw on social media last night that uh, a conservative member of parliament tried to uh, put in a, a private member's motion or bill to uh, end the tanker ban. 
And of course, the NDP and, and the Liberals voted against that. My goodness, Andrew, they're, they're not treating Alberta fairly. They're not giving the best environmental producers in the world a chance to produce, to, to make a living, to pay taxes, and to make the air of the world cleaner. No, and I'm glad you brought up Keystone because I think Western alienation and Western independent sentiments had been on the rise already. But you take the uh, cancellation of Keystone. Now Line 5 is also on thin ice, it seems. You have a number of other projects where there's been great opposition in other provinces in this country and from the federal government. And how is anyone in the West supposed to feel that anyone else in the country cares about their future when these things keep happening? So I I do think to your earlier point, these concerns are only going to grow. Yeah, they're, they're, all, they're only going to grow. And again, I'm grateful and fortunate that for 10 years I've represented Cypress Medicine Hat. I've been paid to speak on their behalf. 10 years ago, we were talking about this daily. Well, 20 years ago, you met the firewall letter. I mean, this is not a, a new problem. It's not a new problem. 20 years since, since it was, things were identified to help make Alberta a stronger part of Canada so, so there'd be more opportunity for, for all of us. And it just hasn't happened. Uh, and, and, you know, the, there's a lot of Albertans now that are starting to believe, Andrew, that the values of Ottawa uh, are not consistent with, with the values out here as well. And those are the, that's the risk that Ottawa is taking. And that's why about a year and a half after the equalization referendum, we need to give Albertans a chance to decide if Ottawa has gone far enough to give us a fair deal. There's many grievances out here. People that just want to work hard, take risk and pay their taxes, raise their families and support their, their communities. And, and uh, at a time, you know, where the, up until the, the pandemic, the world demand for oil, it was growing. Uh, we're seeing the world price for oil start to escalate again while we're at a 30% discount. Um, and, you know, again, I, you know, I, I hate to come back to the hardship, but uh, there, there, there's a lot of hardship out here from young families that just want to work. So just to confirm here, you still think, yes, we need to do the equalization referendum, but you also think that we need to have a further longer term look at this as well, the independence referendum and leverage both to get a better deal, but also be prepared to walk away. Yes, absolutely. To, to all three. Um, you know, Al Albertans have expressed loud and clear for many years that, that it's time for change. Um, the number that I saw last was $670 billion has left Alberta since 1960 and uh, gone to the Canadian Confederation. And, and, and we can't even get uh, resource movement in exchange to continue that. You know, there's something broken. So, uh, you know, Andrew, nothing moves unless it's pushed. Uh, Albertans are telling me every day that they want a new deal with Ottawa. And if they can't get a new deal with Ottawa, as, an, as a free, sovereign people, we need to decide our, our future. Cyprus, Madison Hat MLA, Drew Barnes. Drew, thanks again for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. And that does it for me for today. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. But do let me know what you think if you're from the West or even anywhere else in Canada. You know, I think there are a lot of right-leaning Canadians who, for selfish reasons, wouldn't want Alberta to leave but at the same time, if you care about them, you have to let them go might be the approach that people take. And listen, I mean, I think the country is better with Alberta in it, but I also have been very clear that I don't think any province should have to put up with what Alberta has had to put up with. So the question from there just becomes about how optimistic or pessimistic you are about an ability for there to be a resolution. From the Trudeau government, 
I'd say not likely. In any case, more of this to come. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. God bless and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.